Philosophers. Philosophers. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about something that somewhat topical, um, but may have farther reaching implications. And um, it's an interesting concept I don't feel like it's discussed much, and that is the concept of self-harm and uh, the various forms that takes. Um, also, maybe looking at whether or not we have the right to be able to harm ourselves or not. So, um, any opening arguments, thoughts, David? Well, let's see. I think I think we can talk about the the two major, uh, I guess, sort of like frames of mind around this topic. Um, the first being something like if we're talking about self harm that has to do with drugs. Um, People will say, you know, well, it's it's my body. I can put whatever in it that I want, um, even if it hurts me. Um, from another standpoint, people people who argue against it might say, um, you know, it's a good thing to protect people from themselves. Okay. <clears throat> let's pick a very concrete um, instance and let's work through it first and see if there's any differences from maybe some other... Um, Concrete examples. Let's start with the first one. Uh, let's start with something that's pretty mild, um, at least in my mind, is mild, and that is uh, let's look at something like smoking um, or vaping. You know, since that's somewhat topical lately. Um, do I have the right to smoke a cigarette, even even full and well, knowing that it's going to hurt me in the long run, especially, even if I think that there might be some short term benefit? Because while it's not quite taboo yet. There are short-term benefits to smoking or vaping, you know. They just come with a cost. And um, for those of you who don't know, uh, the main reason people smoke is not always to calm down necessarily. That is one thing that the nicotine, the addictive substance, that the alkaloid, which is very similar to caffeine. Uh, speaking from personal experience as someone who's smoked um, and now vapes. You know, full disclosure. So there goes half so of it our took us. It took us 47 episodes to get to Joe saying, by the way, I vape. Yes. So I, I'm not that guy. I, although if you listen closely or you watch the live show or you listen to our post show, you might know that because you may hear me. Um, uh, there is uh, two good examples of reasons why people will either smoke or vape. Uh, one of them is appetite suppression. Um People who smoke and people who vape, nicotine suppresses your appetite. And while there are, I would never necessarily advocate it for a method of weight loss, most of the time people who smoke or vape, you'll find them in jobs where you don't get the ability to just take a break and to eat. And especially in times previous when food may not be readily available, it can help you function longer without the effects of hunger you're still hungry you still need nutrition you just don't feel it you just don't feel it and uh there is some benefits to that i've even heard some survival specialists say that a part of their survival kit is a bag of tobacco and papers so they can smoke in times when food is scarce and still be able to function and operate while instead of shutting down because they're hungry exactly and becoming because and that's important if you don't have food and you need to get food your ability right, to if you're sitting there yeah. moaning to yourself about how much you need to get food you're and you're not actually getting food that's bad exactly um and the other benefit 
and this is still subject to some research, but it's something still cited more by people who vape or use nicotine in some alternate form than smoking. Um, and that is achieving what is called the nootropic state, which is somewhat still in the woo a bit, I'll admit. But it's a state of mind where you're able to be hyper-focused. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the way that works is you essentially dope your body with alkaloids, which help you achieve focus. And so people who write about it will often talk about balancing. Instead of using substances like Adderall, they will use stuff like nicotine and caffeine in tandem. And that allows them to enter this hyper-productive mode of work where you're able to really hone in and focus on something at sacrificing your creativity. Um, and you can go longer and, and well, it's a uh, nicotine, caffeine, and fasting are the three things that you do normally to achieve that state. And uh, I'm not claiming to be an expert. There could very well be a research that proves this wrong, but I can say from personal experience and it could be psychological, but I, I feel like I achieve this as well because I do fast um, intermittently, I do drink caffeine in large quantities and achieve yep. nicotine. Speaking of a possible placebo effect there, there, there is something to be said about the fact that just because something is a placebo effect doesn't mean it's not working. That is true. You can, if you, if you psych yourself into being productive, you're still being productive. Exactly. And I can markedly show results of that. And so, um, when you fast, your body enters a state in which you start consuming, uh, ketones instead of carbohydrates for energy which is a lot more efficient for your body you don't feel as hungry and most days for example not to get too much into my daily routine although i'd love to answer questions about if anyone had any questions i don't eat breakfast and i generally don't eat lunch um and i'm not hungry during the day but that's because i'm constantly getting caffeine and nicotine in my system and in addition to that you feel you know, you're not having the bodily processes that go along with digesting and energize, you know, turning your food into actual useful resources, which has other effects on your ability to focus. Um, and you're really just able to really just set your body aside while you're focusing on your work. And that's something that I, I've noticed times when I'm able to achieve that I'm way more productive. And it's not just I feel more productive, I can markedly show results that I, I am more productive and able to focus. And that's to me, especially especially someone who is a software engineer and writes code a lot, is really useful. Because whenever you're in a complex topic, there is this concept of spin up and spin down time where when you leave the topic and you reapproach it, you have to kind of refamiliarize yourself temporarily with the situation that you're in so that you can work effectively. And the longer you can go while in that state before you take a break, the better. And so right. There's, a, uh, there's an image that has is now well circulated of the uh the programmer who sits down at his desk and looks at one line of code and it looks kind of innocuous and then he starts thinking about it and starts seeing how it connects to all the other things in the program he starts figuring out and he's just about to solve whatever the problem is and then uh his uh, his co-worker opens the door and said hey did you get that email yep or or hey i got your email or something like that and just it's all gone Right. And then he looks back at his computer, and it's just that one line of code again. It's all it's all gone. Yep. You know. And another uh, interesting one is when people say, hey, can I get five minutes? Well, you, you just cost me 30. You know, right. whether you realize it or not, so you might as well go ahead and say it. But all that aside, there are side effects to me behaving that way. Um, some of them are known, and some of them are unknown, as most things. Um, for example, while most people 
there are enough studies out there on caffeine to make you either think that it is a huge carcinogen or it is the magical golden substance that makes humans able to achieve things like the enlightenment, you know, um, there have been studies on both sides of it all the way through for, you know, you, there's for every article that says caffeine actually helps your heart. There's an article that says caffeine is detrimental to your heart health, you know, and all these it just things. depends on whether or not you live in California. <clears throat> yes. If you drink uh, coffee in California, you will get cancer. It is 100% true. But, um, Regardless, there's plenty of area of unknown, and it could very well be the case that the lifestyle I live, while I may be super productive now, I'm essentially buying time off the end of my life, where I'm causing, I'm shortening my lifespan to get more out of the life that I have while I'm young. And um, there are various thoughts on that. And so it could very well be that I am inducing self-harm to achieve this. And there are various thoughts on that. You know, the first one is that, well, it's your body, your choice. Like David had said, you know, you can do what you want. Then there are also people who say, well, it's, it's detrimental to everybody if you do that because you function as a part of a society. Um, I think one of the biggest areas this gets discussed a lot is when we start talking about universal health care or, you know, single payer systems where your choices. Now, I, I have to pay for your mistakes exactly so to speak in, in the in the realm of medicine exactly and um and you know I'll, I'll cite an example my father's very conservative and he doesn't like single-payer systems for that reason he says i shouldn't have to pay but it, it weirdly always comes with this caveat where he's like well i would be okay with this if we could enforce these people who we essentially would make a catalog of bad decisions and for each of those bad decisions you check you actually pay more Right. And he has a point where if it's proven that these types of behaviors are going to have going to cost you more later in life, we should make you pay more in advance in the context of a single pair system, not saying we should do that. And then there's people who think, well, single pair systems are stupid because you shouldn't make me pay for something that even if it's good for me. And we talked a little bit about that, right? Right. Um, and so... That's kind of the arguments that surface around that. Um, I'm of the opinion that you should that we should not have single payer or universal health care. No one else should have to pay for you, and you should also be able to harm yourself to your long term detriment. Um, but I do acknowledge that there is another system in place that is more social that this does impact, and that is the human altruistic element, where even if I see a guy sitting on the street corner who is poor and homeless, say, that guy could very well be in that situation because he got lung cancer from smoking for years, which he chose to do knowing it was going to hurt him. And now he could no longer afford to maintain a standard of living because he has to pay every penny he gets or had to pay every penny he got to curing his, well, treating his lung cancer, right? Now, I won't know that necessarily seeing him on the street corner, but I might still feel the need to help him because humans are altruistic in their nature yeah and so i still he still is somewhat costing society by you could say but now it's voluntary not compulsory it is voluntary but i think that's another thing too is people sometimes think that the human altruism is compulsory because you don't necessarily choose to feel altruistic 
And some people would argue that the feeling, the altruistic feeling. Well, you feeling, don't choose to feel negligent either. So <clears throat> right. what's the difference? Well, and I think that, well, what's getting said about that is that if enough people, it, it's the concept of if we should allow it, you should imagine everybody doing it to see if it still works. And if everybody does this, where does that leave us? You know, if we were all made the same choice as he did. And we all ended up with lung cancer and in a state where none of us could afford to X, Y, you know, then we can't afford to take care of each other. And there's going to be huge problems with it. You know, uh, it only is okay when a few people use it, um, which to I usually would respond to something like, well, if everyone gets lung cancer, then why wouldn't the market come up with a much, the, you know, the demand for lung cancer treatments goes through the roof. So why would the market not try to solve that problem even more? But that all aside, you know. At the core principle, I think, in play here is people think that is is it's morally irresponsible of you to harm yourself. Period. Um, regardless, and people will look at it through a selfish lens of, well, it harms me when you do that. But they oftentimes will say you are being irresponsible for taking care of yourself because self-care is something you are responsible for. And by yep. you not living so, up to it, it's morally irreprehensible. Let's take it to something... Uh, something perhaps a little bit more clear um well it, it is and it isn't more clear so um let's uh let's talk about our our favorite thing children yay yay uh well, actually i want to talk about parents um, oh even better yes um <clears throat> so our, well okay first of all we should establish are parents responsible for their children depends on who you ask sure or should they be right should well, and, and, and I, I guess I should use more clear language as well. Are parents obligated to care for their children? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, now let's take a very extreme example of suicide, the ultimate self-harm. Yes. If parents have an obligation to care for their children, then is it morally acceptable for them to commit suicide? while their children are still under their care i would say no but then again this is something when we talk about suicide it's very interesting because to the person who is contemplating suicide the response you'll get is i won't care i'll be dead right so it wouldn't matter and uh, that's a that's a problem you know and it, but it's a problem caused by nature not so much human nature it's just nature in general you when right. you are dead you can't do anything else that's kind of what death is, is right um but you still can but you have this there is the concept of the legacy as well which is essentially um people care about what happens after they die right generally generally well other people will care you know that there's a saying i, I don't know who to attribute it to at this time but that you die twice you die the first time when your body dies and you cease to be able to make decisions but you die again when everyone forgets about you well you die again the last time someone mutters your name essentially right. um which that's a little artistic in it's in saying but it's true you know it, your impact on the world will last much longer than you will possibly forever chained together with other people's actions. yeah i was gonna say arguably forever right in some way and and to most optimistic nihilists, that's the reason for living a good life. You know, it may not matter. Nothing, none of this may matter. But to me, and I may not matter, but my choices will matter much more than I will because of how long they're going to have an effect. And I think we have to be careful because can we hold people responsible to something after they're dead? You know, 
or can we hold them responsible for what effect they will have while they're still alive? And that's, that's an interesting concept of, you know, oh, well, you made these choices and right now there are no problems with it. So I can't hold you immediately responsible, but I've looked into the future <laughs> and seen how that plays out. So Hitler's mom <laughs> is a problem. You know what I mean? Um, but I do think there is something there. Um, my gut reaction is it shouldn't matter. You know, we should we should not hold people responsible for what effect they will have on others after they're dead. Because it, there is a blend of responsibility there where... Uh, well, I'm getting ethereal here, I guess. But I was going to say, I don't know if I would quite accept that we... <laughs> that we shouldn't care what effect people will have on others after they're dead. I mean, like what, what about um, something like a suicide bomber? Sure. We care a lot about the effect that they have on other people after they've died. Okay. That's true. Well, let's just go back to the example of the, of the parent. I, th I think that's a good place to go. And I kind of skirted it a little bit yep. and I need to address it directly. I think, um, yes, you have left a bad mark on another person by doing that. Now we can't hold you responsible anymore but that doesn't mean it wasn't morally reprehensible. Um, same thing with the suicide bomber. It's still bad that you did it, even if we can't hold you responsible. And in a way, I think that's what makes suicide X, you know, if, right. Suicide we, murders, suicide murders, really reprehensible is, well, first of all, there's the emotional response of people cannot get retribution. Right. And people feel robbed of their ability to get retribution, but it also seems really unjust. in the fact that you have created You've created a cost for which someone else is now going to have to pay because you are no longer able to pay it. Um, you created a debt that you will not pay because you cannot. And that is a problem because if you were alive and did that, we could hold you to paying for it, but now we can't. And so we have to, there I think is something to be said about preemptive action there. Like, for example, with the parent and the child. Like, the parent who commits suicide and leaves a child uncared for. You can't make the child pay for its own care. No. Someone's going to have to pick up the slack. And someone who is someone who is not obligated, normally, right. to pick up that right. slack. The, yeah, the parent who's committed suicide has now placed an unjust burden on somebody else to take care of the child. Right. And the answer generally is, well, now society has to step in and take care of it. Okay. What does that mean, though? What does that but, mean, though? Yeah. Like, how do you pick somebody? Yeah. And most people, and that's where the state comes in a lot of the time is. Well, is the state has some sort of code by which they can <clears throat> choose a next of kin. Right. Well, and, and that's kind of the exact reason the state exists in a lot of ways. The state use, is essentially the incorporation of the society. It is the entity we treat as an individual, but it it's representative of the society as a whole. So people can lay that at the feet of the state. And it's like, you are my... You are the body that assumes the responsibilities for things that I should not have to or that I have a partial obligation to. Because you can make the argument that when a parent commits suicide, they have taken the remaining years of that child's life that they need to be cared for and dumped those on society as a whole. And if we just did the first thing you might think of, which is, all right, divvy that responsibility up evenly amongst the number of people in the society... And so now each person has to spend four hours and 26 minutes taking care of this child. If we assume they're going to become an adult at 18, you know, just say it works out that way. That's super impractical to implement because first of all, this person has in post-mortem continued to inflict harm on other people and we can't stop it. 
So what people have gotten done is gotten together and said, okay, well, let's, uh, let's appoint something that takes care of those types of things, you know? And I think from the monarchist perspective, that's, that's the point of a government uh, in a lot of ways is take the things that society as a whole is held accountable for or something that you can't lay at the feet of an individual and you create an individual whose feet you lay these things at and then it is supported by everyone else writ large, you know? And um, there are mixed results with that, you know? Because right now, it, you know, right now that's kind of how it is. But in addition to that, you know, but is that is that how you solve the problem? You know, how how do you how do we deal with debts to nobody? You know, or debts to everybody, or is it the same? Like in in your mind, who is responsible now for that child? Yeah, I don't know. It, it well, I would say if there's another living parent, then their responsibility, barring some other complication. Sure. I mean. Well, let's, let's think about it like this, because we at one point had talked about looking at children as essentially property, and I think this actually might work um, if we th- if we choose to look at it that, like that. They are property until they're not, <laughs> or they're property until they can be claimed by themselves, or until they're forced to claim themselves. Right. So if they're five, probably not old enough to claim themselves yet. <clears throat> so let's just treat them like property. All right. Well, this person that killed themselves probably had a house too. Let's just say that in a so car. Basically, whoever inherits this person's property. Inherits the child along with it. Yeah. And now it's their responsibility. Um, but, and while this, but the person who may have inherited the house might say, I don't want it. And they just, it becomes unclaimed. Could a child become unclaimed in the same way and just be left there for someone to claim along with the house? I mean, yes, we have a word for this, which applies to property as well. Abandonment. Yes. The problem is with a child, people feel much more altruistically bound to uh, claim a child. Right. I don't care if someone abandons a house and leaves it to rot, but I do care if someone leaves a child to die. Right. We don't like that. But it, you will have, if we implemented this, say, as a system, you will have that come about. But I do think in the same way that if someone abandons a house, I think there are going to be plenty of people who jump at the opportunity to, hey, this is a free house. Even if it's crap, the land it's on is going to be worth something. And anything is valuable if it's free. You know, if it has any value at all and you're being given to it free, it's a net gain. Then the question becomes, is a child the same? Because our child, our children net positive gains. I think what makes a child different is to the parents, yes. Because you are genetically benefiting. But how do I... The not parent, not related person who claims the house, looking at the child, going, hmm, "Do I net benefit from this?" And this is assuming we're all cold machines and doing this by math. You know, no, you're not. Like, if anything, you not an- necessarily. Uh, but uh, well, hear me out. I'm sp- I'm speaking strictly from the genetic standpoint. Well, genetically, no. Genetically, no, and even genetically, maybe a net loss because if you have children of your own, why would you raise competition for your own genetics? It's it's a net loss through and through. But then again, we aren't machines like that, and we don't think purely in well, genetic terms. Well, well, right. But <clears throat> now, but even if we even if we stick the the paradigm of thinking mechanically like this, um, having another warm body around can pay off in other ways as well. Well, certainly. Um, and even for your other kids with whom they are initially competing, they can turn around and help them later. Right. Well, in addition to looking at children like property in this way. 
you get total autonomy over it. Well, a child, even at five or six, can be put to work, you know, and that's another thing that people really kind of, you know, recoil at is child labor, but it still happens all the time, even in first world countries. Um, when I grew up, um, I was free labor. My, I didn't get paid to mow the lawn, but I mowed the lawn because I was told to. Right. It's essentially a slave. <laughs> this is what children are, essentially slave property. Um, I cooked dinner occasionally. I cleaned the house. You know, I had two parents, but they both worked for a period of my life where I took care of my other siblings. And th- they are valuable, but they require upfront investment um, while they're not. And some people might look at this as a net positive because someone else got them to five. So that's a bunch of debt I don't have to pay. And they're much closer to being useful. So, yeah, why not take it on? And I do think, you know, that just in the cold way, you're right. There are there are ways of seeing why people would step up and do this. Um, and I think the fact that it would be taken care of is even more compounded by the fact that we aren't just cold thinking machines. You know, we have altruism. There are plenty of people who out of there, like, I, I don't know the statistic offhand, but there are plenty of people out there right now who want children who can't have them right. or people who have kids who want to take other kids on, but it's difficult because for some reason adoption's expensive. Who would have thought, you know, like, um, but in this society, if it was free, if the market was allowing it to happen, I think we wouldn't have this problem. I think you would occasionally have, the rare circumstance, like for example, someone committing suicide without telling anybody else and the child is being left unattended, that that still goes to the feet of the person who committed suicide, but you're attributing something to someone who's dead. So Yeah, so, so what? So what? But what are you gonna do? Yeah. Right, but this but society is at fault for not knowing that this person committed suicide and this child dying because they were not fed or watered. God, it makes it sound like I'm treating them like a like a, pet. a plant. Our plant but i i don't know i'm actually pretty satisfied with that and the circumstance of it treating them like property i think works here and <clears throat> because it creates a market incentive and there's an altruistic incentive and when both of those things are in line I think you see the highest degree of human engagement towards something uh, individuals will come forward and perhaps even compete over it um but the, what about the case of true abandonment in which there is no, there are no, I mean, do we, do we need to keep genealogical records to trace back up and come back down to find the next living relative for a child? Or is it just immediate inheritance? I, I think, or is it, I that, think that's really arbitrary. Sure. Um, I mean, yeah, there's, there's obviously a biological route there, but, um, I think it works either way, though. Like you said, it's arbitrary how you implement it, but it'll work. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think it would be better for just anyone locally to take the responsibility than for us to go trace back a whole bunch of records and then find somebody who probably lives a long way away and be like, surprise, your distant relative killed themselves. Here's this child. Take care of it. Like, <laughs> But you get the house, too, so. I guess so. Um. Well, and for those who, I mean, there's an argument to be made around heredity too, you know, yeah. or is that the word I yes. want to use there? Um, who inherits what? Mm. You know, I know some people that are under the idea that something, nothing should be inherited. Like when you die, everything immediately just becomes unclaimed again. And the next person who, who claims it 
gets it, you know. Um, that would still work in that scenario, too, regardless of the merits of that system, which right. I don't think we really want to discuss right now. No, that's off topic. Um, hmm. So, in that case, it's fine. I mean, it's... So, a l- slightly related, <clears throat> should... Should people intervene, if possible, with someone who is planning suicide, who is in this situation? That's a difficult situation, I think, because I don't think there may be a metaphysical answer. I think it's going to have to be pragmatic because, for example, I support the concept of euthanasia. Right. It's the same thing. It's suicide, but... Typically, we separate the two by euthanasia being, well, you do you no longer owe anything to anybody, so go ahead. And uh, suicide being you abruptly end it and leaving debts in place, which is a problem. So, I, it, I think it depends on your opinion on enforce, moral enforcement. I think it depends, because some people are of the opinion that others should not enforce morality. You know, it should be something that is socially enforced, perhaps, but not physically enforced. And in that case, you can socially intervene. You can try to talk them out of it. You can perhaps negotiate with them. You know, like, for example, if someone's like how I would handle the situation if my neighbor was trying to commit suicide. You know, you might be able to negotiate with that person because there's generally a reason Um and it might say be to my benefit because I've had a good relationship with this neighbor up until this point, And I will take the certainty of a good neighbor over the uncertainty of perhaps a bad neighbor that will replace them. And what is that worth to me? You know, I'd have to figure that out. But worth is relative too. So if I have enough worth, if it's worth enough to me, I could be motivated to try to even maybe financially assist that person because financial reasons are a large reason or a large contributor to suicide, for example. Right. The, the panic of not knowing what to do. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And so I think it might be an obligation for you to, but it's a self-fulfilling obligation. Um, not self-fulfilling. What's the word I'm looking for? Self-serving. I, yeah. Self-serving. Like I, I do think there, there is, in most cases, there is a selfish reason to also intervene. Um, I think, depending on the type of heredity system and who inherits what, I don't, I still feel like I'm using that wrong, but Mm -hmm. it's whatever. It depends on the system of inheritance. Those who would inherit these things might have motivations um, in certain circumstances where like, say the person who would inherit all this debts and benefits alike, assets alike. You can look at the scenario as, Hmm. Does it benefit me or not to for this person to off themselves? And um, since you are the person who would be unfairly, potentially, have this laid at your feet, if you knew about it, then depending on how that goes, it, at that point, it's either not wrong because you're okay with it, so it's not unsolicited. And so if they do want to off themselves and you're okay with them doing it, then I don't think there's any harm in that necessarily. Not necessarily in that relationship. Although, well, I, you know, of course I'm thinking of other side effects because we can also consider the psychological trauma endured by a child whose parent 
kills themselves. Yeah, but is the child property or not at that point? Because if you go under the child as property, doesn't matter. They're a damaged good, but they're someone else's. You know, you can damage your goods if you so choose. And the person who would be taking on that good would have to calculate you know, to themselves. You know, I think, I think this gets into the into the the weird realm where where children are, but they aren't property. Okay, well, let's say they're not property. Let's just make them people from the moment they're conceived, for the sake of argument. I'm not because sure. I think really they're somewhere in between. Well, for me, it's arbitrary, sure, but for the sake of completion, let's just say it's conception because that's where the pro-lifers are going to come from anyway, and sure. that's really the first place you can consider it. I think within reason. So anyway, and to be thorough, start there. Well, in that case. It's the child's responsibility to take care of themselves. Right. I, well, you're the, the person who would commit suicide, the parent, is obligated, but they don't necessarily have to fulfill that obligation. For, for moral benefit, they should, but it still comes back to the same question of how do you enforce morality? You know? Yeah. And that's difficult. Because you can view it as har- them harming the child. And I think in that scenario, it also depends on how you look at self-defense on behalf of someone else or otherly defense. Yeah, well, yeah that, that's that's sort of where I was going to go with it as far as intervention is that you're not necessarily protecting the person considering suicide from themselves, but you are protecting their child from the effects of your suicide or of theirs. Yeah. Right. Now, this comes with a bit of caution, I think, because where do you draw the line? Right. You know, because in suicide, I think most people would think, yeah, that's a good thing. You should intervene to for the sake of the child because you are protecting somebody else. Is that my obligation, though? Am I obligated to protect other people? No, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't think that you're necessarily obligated to intervene. I guess I just wanted to consider whether it was ethical or moral to intervene. I think it depends. You know, we've talked a lot about recently the ethics and morality of defending getting in other, yeah, getting escalating in other people's. Uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but yeah. problems. Let's just say Get, that, getting yeah. involved in somebody else's problem, right? Because that is somebody else's problem. It is, and that's a hard thing. Because I feel like altruistically, that part of us that pulls at us to make us, air quotes, human, we, we're wanting to. We really want to. And But is it right? I mean, because I mean, you can make the argument that it, the there's, I think, two ways to look at it. There's the instant to look at it, you know, the exact moment. And then there is the long term. You have to weigh those. In the instant, the claim could easily be made, though, that the person considering suicide, they... What good is it stopping them from doing that? If they're all, if they're willing to cause that harm once, what's to keep them from wanting to just neglect the child too? You know, after that, because you could. I say, guess there's an assumption made that more time is better than less time. Possibly. If they don't die, then you have a chance to convince them that they shouldn't. That you know that they should care about their child. That they should do so and so. Right. Well, and if you threaten to intervene over suicide 
perhaps the reason the person is committing suicide is because they're like, well, I will not be held responsible if I'm dead. But if I'm alive and forced to stay alive, they will have to take care of it because they're alive, you know. So another angle um, has to do with our our favorite definition of aggression, Mm -hmm. the initiation of a coercive relationship. Well, yeah. If I intervene with somebody's suicide, am I not coercing them to not follow through with an action they're trying to take? You are. Yeah. I think this is interesting because this is where our favorite viewer, <laughs> Abathion, who came on the show, he talks about self-actualization a lot. Is suicide considered self-actualization or not? Yeah. Because I don't know. you can replace the because I do think there is something to be said, though, about, well, there's a difference between self-actualization and the freedom of choice to do what you want. You know, suicide may be the exact opposite of self. It's self-deactualization because you are removing yourself, you know. Um, and looking at it through that lens, it is justifiable to intervene because you are not only doing, they're not only doing that to themselves, but to everyone else. And so they are threatening the self-actualization of the child if they have one. Are they? Yes. Especially if we take into account the psychological damage that's going to be caused that's preventing the person from actualizing. Um, Especially if you view children as people, then yes. If they're property, then no. And if they're somewhere in between, then somewhere in between. You know, that's that's the problem is how you define it. Yeah. Um, I think if we remove children from the equation, it, does it stay the same? You know, because children mess up everything. You know, let's look at a, let's just say a 40-year-old farmer who wants to commit suicide. He has a nice farm. It's very productive. He has cattle and sheep and machinery and all this stuff. He wants to commit suicide. He's still deactualizing himself should he be free to do that i don't know i think most people would say well it's your body your choice yeah. you know and in the case of the most extreme suicide we might say you know it's okay let's, let's think about it like this because can you commit a crime against yourself and a crime against yourself, no. Okay, and, and the reason I want to say that is maybe to address uh, another way of looking at it is if you look at it from the perspective of the victim. In this case, the victim and the aggressor are the same person. Right. Suicide is essentially self-murder. From the perspective of someone being murdered, should you per- intervene to stop someone from being murdered? Maybe. <clears throat> maybe. Maybe. Um. Because I think some people will come at it from that angle is, well, I'm not looking at it as this person is uh, trying to commit suicide. I'm going to look at it as though I'm going to split this, this person. This person is being murdered by somebody, and I'm going to stop that somebody from murdering this person. Yeah, even though it happens though to be the themselves. Person. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but then again, you know, to that same credit, let's look at it from the concept of a consensual duel. <laughs> let's just say that with one guy who's just giving up. Um, I actually think consensual dueling should be fine. Like, if you and me want to go out and point guns at each other to kill each other, 
over a dispute, and that's how we want to resolve it. We both consent. Should anyone be able to intervene? Oh, well, or is this a red herring? I don't know. Well, well, I, I think it's sort of related. But so, so now, now I'm thinking of, okay, what if the loser of the duel has unsettled debts with others? Um, so now I, I would think that there would have to be some sort of uh, of rule in place where the winner of such a duel assumes all of the responsibilities of the the loser. Hmm. Because otherwise they are unfairly hurting others who right the person have not been repaid. Yeah, the person who debtors. has yeah. debt that's entering the duel is essentially gambling other people's assets at that point. Right, because your debt is someone else's asset. Yes, um, that's an interesting concept. That we sh- we should probably just talk about debt in general at some point because yeah. that there's some interesting things that, s- that crop up around that because it's something that doesn't exist. <laughs> um, right, but. It's just an idea. Yep. It's an idea, but it's an idea we all, a lot of us buy into. Um, well, in that case, uh, the, the question then has to be had is, do, does me being in debt to you give you a certain control over my life and choices? Does debt allow you to become pseudo-owned by somebody in some way? No. I think it just, it, well, the thing the thing about debt is that there are, there's so many ways that like the, the terms of debt can be different. Yes, they can. You know, because if we like had a contract of, you know, you owe me this much and you will pay it in these increments at these uh, intervals, then you now have a responsibility to, to do exactly that. And if you find yourself unable to do that, then we can renegotiate the terms by which you can repay the debt or whatever. Um, but on the other hand, if I like casually lend you $5 and we don't, you know, we don't agree on terms. Eventually, you're supposed to pay me back. Then, then I don't know that I have the authority to say, okay, now I really need my five dollars back, and you better pay up. Right. I think that needs to go into its own topic. I think. Yeah. Because I think we could talk. I think we could easily tangent off for the remaining time of our episode on just debt. Yeah. So let's let's table that. Um, that's okay. Let's just look at it from the moral aspect. Could regardless of the debt let's just say this person has no debts for the sake of the benefit of the argument could he still consent to a duel with another person if he has a debt well no sorry sorry not debt no debts all right so all right if someone has no debts can they consent to a duel yes that the question um can people go into consensual murder fests (laughs) like i don't see why not okay and and for for the same reason why like cuz basically my problem with suicide has to do with debts or obligations right but if someone has no debts or obli- or other obligations i don't see a problem with suicide either right and so and because dual is just potential suicide essentially you're you're just volunteering yourself to be put into a deadly situation right you're assuming a well it's just like anything else you're assuming a risk right <clears throat> for which the uh, you're acknowledging there is a risk that i will not make it out of this alive right but i potentially benefit greatly Right. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> or it's just for... Subjectively. Subjectively. Well, that's a thing Or about... maybe objectively, depending on the terms of the duel, but... Sure. Well, I mean, but that has a lot to do with the concept of value. Yeah. And, well, relative value. You know, the person who is entering... One person entering the duel may say, my life is worth very little to me, because that's just how it is to them. And most people in suicide view it the same way. My right. life is not worth anything to me, so there's just no point. Um, but I could potentially gain something in a duel, whereas in suicide, it's like, well, what do I have to gain? 
know, if we created this type of society, I think suicide would actually become obsolete and people would just start dueling for fun or dueling because until they right, just see how far you can get, see how far you can get, or until you establish value added to your life and then you take yourself out of the situation. But what you've essentially created is a round robin suicide where one person you minimize the number of suicides by letting the suicides trade value until one of them comes out, but you still lose people in the process. It's an, you know from the uh, utilitarian perspective, it's a net gain. So uh, <laughs> that's that's it's interesting. Um, I think. I mean, is it unavoidable, though, that... Well, let's look back at the child example to confirm. Well, in this case, the opposite. I have no children. I only have valuable assets for which I am responsible that are not people. That upon my death will actually, almost in all circumstances, benefit other people for them gaining it. You know, like, I have money that's going to go to somebody else that they did not earn. I have property that will be disseminated or in either in the scenario where it's inherited or in the scenario in which it is just freed up for other people to take can i kill myself is there anything wrong with that is this is it still morally wrong for you to commit suicide no i don't think so okay so the morality around suicide is actually a debt question right right who who directly is affected by the consequences of your death mm-hmm. and then well I think I think the same should go for for any death really uh whether it's a a natural death or a murder or whatever um well n- not necessarily that murder isn't wrong if you don't have deaths but um or if the victim doesn't have deaths but right. but it's the um the if we're, if we're thinking about the the impact that it has on other people, that that's really is what matters. Because because otherwise, like if we're only thinking about like okay, well, presumably you have friends or family members who would be upset that you died, but you don't owe them happiness, right? Okay, let's let's look at it from the concept of natural death, because I think there might be an answer here, possibly. What if we just treated suicide like natural deaths, right? Because in you this, got a disease and it killed you. Right. What's you, the difference? Exactly. Because you're dead, so we can't hold you responsible for getting that disease. You know, you can't hold the disease responsible because it's not an agent. You know, if in the case of suicide, we look at it as the moment you've committed suicide, there is no one who you can assign that responsibility to in the same way that you can't assign it to anybody in the case of a natural death. It's actually very similar, I think. How do you handle it in the case of a natural death? The person who has debts. It's a good question. Um, I think, you know, the, there's a question to be answered there. And I think it may not sit well with us that a person, because but I think we might be able to answer it the same. Is there anything wrong with doing what you, whatever system you put in place societally to handle natural death? Is there anything wrong with using that exact same system on someone who has committed suicide? No. So why don't we just consider suicides natural deaths? Because they kind of are, you know. I would argue that there na- there are natural deaths, maybe because, say, they are mentally afflicted with a mental disease. I I think it's perfectly valuable to consider perfectly valuable, perfectly valid, to view suicide as a natural death of a cause of a disease. Granted, it's a disease of the mind, not a, or the yeah the mind, not of the brain or the body. You know, because I think it, you know suicide in and of itself is a abnormal behavior 
um, just like anything else. Sure. So maybe that's just how I think that may be a way we can get around it and deal with it and categorize it. Because if you do the same thing, what's the point in delineating the actions for the other other than the sake of just specifics? You know, ethereally, they're the same or metaphysically, they're the same because they yield the same result. Um, The difference is that there is a choice made by a person. But you could make the argument that, you know, how many steps removed is it? Is it, you know, because, for example, if I get hit by a rock slide that day, well, I still chose to be there, but I didn't know. But you had no way of knowing that that was that, that your choice to go there was going to result in your death. Right. And in, in the case of suicide, I may not have known the decisions I was going to make would have led me to the mental state prepared for suicide and i think a person who is ready to commit suicide probably i i don't know this i'd be interested to hear more about it but a person who commits suicide do you do you think there is any good rational reason to commit suicide or can can a person be of healthy mind and still commit suicide yes okay i think that i think that is possible um like if someone like okay Let's take a, a really extreme example, a highly unrealistic example, but I think it makes things very clear. Uh, suppose I'm an astronaut, okay, and I find myself stranded on some, you know, foreign body, the moon, or... You're just drifting. Uh, or, 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 yes, just a, like, my, my spacecraft malfunction, and now I'm just drifting through uh, interstellar space, and there is no hope for anyone to rescue me, and I'm quickly running out of resources, I rationally have no reason to believe that I will ever get out of this situation alive. Um, so rather than allow myself to painfully starve to death, I decide to kill myself. I think a healthy person would do that. Maybe. And there's w- instances like that that happened in... Uh, <clears throat> Well, okay. I don't know. I don't know if this is uh, if this is fact or fiction. It is. It is. It is said that uh, pilots in World War One carried a revolver in their cockpit, so that if their plane engine caught fire, rather than burning all the way to the ground, they could just shoot themselves. Hmm. But in that case, in which death is a certainty, you're going to die anyway. You're just choosing a different... Right, you're just choosing to die on your own terms rather than let nature take its course. Or arguably you're choosing to die with a life less painful than right. a die, you know. But it's still suicide. It's still suicide, but to what end? You know, that that to me is almost which is just one step removed from, well, you know, technically you pulling the trigger didn't kill you. <laughs> you know, it, the bullet entering your brain didn't kill you. It was the cease of neural activity that killed you you know you know i guess so i mean but at that point you know okay is there a circumstance in which a person is not resigned to death that they can rationally commit suicide then because you can make the argument that okay the guy who's burning in the plane if he commits suicide there is still a chance he could survive he may not burn to death before he hits water and he might survive there's a chance he will survive the plane crash potentially even unscathed for the most part there is still a chance and that's something that people will always say around suicide is what's really wrong with suicide is that you are removing the you you are eliminating the possibility 
of survival. And that's what's wrong with it is that you are making a choice to guarantee something that is not a guarantee. You know, that's uh, I hear I've heard that argument made is that like take the, take the astronaut in his dysfunctional spaceship. You don't know because and I'm going to throw a wild a wild thing out there, but an alien race could discover you before you starve to death and return you home. That is a there is an actual chance of that. It is highly improbable, but it exists. And by killing yourself, you rob, you know, you, you've removed that possibility. And that's the difference. Granted, I do think, you know, what, what we're talking also about here is the value of life. And that's, you know, that's, I think, how we can tie euthanasia into it. I think it depends on the relative value of human life, whereas, you know, short-term pain and a short-term end might increase the overall value of your total lived lifespan yeah that's what people who often seek well, well, right. say e- exactly well yeah when you're when you're old and bored and in pain just get it over with right like it's y- coming yeah you're on your deathbed you know you have terminal cancer you you might make the argument that even if someone discovers a cure for this tomorrow and i'm allowed to live it's not worth the four years I'm probably going to have left of this life that is nothing but excruciating pain and in right, you're willing to take a chance because I mean, I mean, because really, we're all going to die. Unfortunately, we just don't know when, like, under what circumstances. Right, and like, like even if functional immortality becomes a thing, you'll still die. The you'll still death. die eventually. Yeah, something is going to happen that kills you. Um. So really, really, it's it's all about the the gamble. You don't know what it's going to be if not yourself. Yeah. Looking at it through that lens, I I don't know. A, a part of me have always decided has always believed that suicide. There are two types of suicide. There is the rational and the irrational suicide. The but both essentially yield the same result that's why we don't normally delineate the two but one you try to prevent and one you don't like the death to an illness just like you would try to prevent death from a natural cause you would try to prevent death from irrational suicide um i think if we broke them into those two categories it would really simplify things a lot so let's take the person who's mentally ill and trying to commit suicide they're irrationally trying to commit suicide if you see them with you know the gun in the mouth or the gun to the hand or whatever they're choosing to use or they tell you i'm going to commit suicide and you are able to determine or you have a high degree of confidence that you that they're serious they're serious or that they're but you'd also have to determine that they're absolutely unwell in their choice i think you are within your right to try to convince them otherwise and to try to help them. Yes. Um, because for example, but that's a, but you now will assume a new risk that you're will that if you're willing to accept it, that's your choice. It's the same thing with the, it's very similar to the, you see someone with a baseball bat dressed in black, kick down my door and come in my house. You're going to risk that, that 
you're going to make an assumption and based on those assumptions, take a risk that that person is there to do me harm. And, and by intervening, you assume the risk that you're wrong and you will be held responsible if you are wrong. Because it could be that I just got back from a baseball game. My uniform happens to be black and I lock myself out and I decide it's more worth it to me to replace the or door. You're, or you're an actor and you're too irresponsible to remember to not have your your costume or some other outfit besides your costume sure whatever you know but you <laughs> choosing to intervene are to assuming the risk um and a risk that may benefit you because for example if you prevent a suicide due to irrational courses and you help them get back into the rational mind they may very well they may not necessarily owe it to you but, but they you, will feel like it. They like will that, feel a, like it. They will people, be obligated. Yeah, people feel obligated about that kind of thing. Exactly. And and even then, you might just feel good about it yourself for doing a good thing. Right. You've saved a person's life. Just in the same way that you might save a person's life from a rock slide. If you see that the rocks are loose and you know for a fact this is due to collapse at any moment, if you could just tell that person, don't go out there. You know, that, And you can explain the risk. You saved that person's life that day. You don't know that you'd have, but... And that's people feel less obligated at that point. Oh, well, you can take something a little bit more clear. You're riding as a passenger in a uh, a vehicle with somebody, and you know they are a little bit distracted, and you see them coming or er, er, uh, drifting into the oncoming lane, and there's a, a truck in the oncoming lane. You grab the wheel and pull it over uh, back into the into the correct lane. You know you, in some ways, took that person's agency from them, but you saved them as well. Or as well as yourself. yourself. Yeah, but but I think that's okay. I think I think in the case of the irrational suicide, it's the same as natural death or p- potential natural death. You are as- assuming a risk. This all the same because you, for example, could risk interfering with someone else's agency who rationally wanted to commit suicide, and that would be an interesting court case to hear. Is I'm suing you for preventing me from committing suicide in a rational way okay <laughs> well uh how would that work it'd be interesting to think about but technically if they were in their right mind and rational in doing so yes you did interfere with their agency especially if it would come at no harm to anyone else um it would be weird to see played out i don't think necessarily the person would be held to a high degree of responsibility because if the person wanted to commit suicide well now they can now they can just do it again yeah. yes um and so your debt to them is cleared when they commit suicide. In that right, way. exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a good risk to take. I think there is a high reward, low risk for trying to intervene with someone trying to commit suicide, which is why, which is good because people will be motivated to do so um, pe- instead of discouraged. So in the case of irrational suicide, you do treat it like a natural event. But in the case of rational suicide, you have to treat it like a choice and a right. Um how this plays out in the intricacies of, well, how do you define a rational suicide? How What's the test you put someone through um, that's you know, that's arbitrary and, need, and to be determined? Um, but I think in the case of a rational suicide, it is that person's responsibility and they are uh, free to do so. Now, I think debt might complicate it somewhat, but I think we can get into that when we discuss debt because I think... It should. I think it might still not matter, but it, that's to be determined. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm actually okay with that. So just to sum it all up, you know, our current thinking, and so you can correct me if I'm wrong. In the, you know, what was the question? 
the right to self-harm. Oh, let's do some quick due diligence real quick and take it back to smoking. Let's just just go there. If a person is smoking irrationally, <laughs> do you have the right to intervene to stop them? Um, but if, or is it like a natural event? And then if the person is rationally smoking, it's their choice. I, I think, I think uh, yeah, well, because I mean, like, like the case can be made that like smoking or binge drinking or whatever is just um, a very slow suicide. Yes. Well, but then again, you don't, but, well, although you don't actually, because it is such a slow suicide, you don't know if that's what will take them. Sure. Like there's a very high probability that they will die in a car accident before they get lung cancer from sure. smoking. Um, so I think, I think in that case, if anything, the uncertainty should prevent you from intervening. But I think let's, let's make it a little more easy to deal with. Or maybe harder. Uh, opiate abuse. Okay. I would think that addiction is an irrational state. Let's say that. Mm. Addiction. Okay. Depends. Do you treat addiction as an illness or do you treat addiction as a uh, choice? Um, I think it depends on the type of addiction. A chemical addiction is real. That's what well, an opiate addiction is yeah. a chemical yes. addiction. So, so regardless, yeah, I, I would treat it as an illness. It's yeah, it's, you know, and in the same way that we might treat someone who is suffering from depression and wanting to commit suicide because of it, do you treat it the same way? No, depression is a psychological thing. Um, okay, well, in the earlier I now stated, it, we treat psychological illnesses the same as physical illnesses. Sure, it's not it's not exactly the same, but okay. I think the choices leading up to that's the thing. We're looking at these things in a vacuum, which is really hard to do. Yeah. With addiction, you could say there possibly, in large cases, a choice choices were made that ended the person here, or that resulted in this person being here. You could say the same for depression. A person could have made bad decisions that led to them becoming depressed and, you know, getting them here. I think in the instant you choose to intervene, though, you can't make assumptions. I don't think we have to look at it in the vacuum because... In most cases, if I see a guy on the on the street corner who is like shooting up heroin, and he is clearly addicted, like, or I see a guy willing to do some really um, unscrupulous things, and his reason that he's because in a society in which say heroin is use is legal, people might just be very open with I'm prepared to do some very uh, terrible things to myself to afford my addiction. I think you can still take the risk to help him the same way you might take the risk to help somebody who is depressed and wanting to commit suicide. It's the same because you don't know how they got there. Right. I, well, yeah, but th then, of course, there's a meaningful difference between trying to talk somebody out of uh, buying heroin or committing suicide. Uh, there, there's there's an important difference between that and um, actually snatching it from their hands. Yes, but, um, okay, let's take the ultimate example of um, it, it being an illness. People who suffer from a, a mental illness that is, say, intelligence in, in, intelligence impugning. You know, say, say a person, uh, I don't want to say Down syndrome because I don't know enough about it, but let's just say a person who's suffering from a strong mental illness that honestly prevents them from being able to make good choices. You know... 
as far as that person's concerned, I, th- I think, okay, well, let's look about it like this. I think the first thing you should always do in any of those scenarios, like the due diligence on your part is to determine whether it's rational or irrational. So in the case of an irrationally motivated suicide, the first thing you might do, you might intervene physically. You take the risk and intervene, take the gun out of their hand, and let's just apply it to the same thing with the heroin needle. You take the heroin needle out of their hand, you intervene. And then the next thing you must do, I think, in that case is try to determine whether well, it'll be up to both of you, and trust me, the other person's probably going to want to argue with you over it. Um, you, you now enter into a conflict of reason and who is in the wrong. That it, This is one of those things where it's not obvious necessarily who is in the wrong. But once it's determined who's in the wrong, the other person should be allowed to continue with their action while the other person is stopped. So in the case of an irrational suicide, you, and the result of this would be a person in the irrational suicide will either prove to you that it is a rational suicide, and then they're allowed to continue committing suicide, or they are proven to irrationally trying to be commit suicide, and then we try to rehabilitate that person. Same thing in the case of heroin. If they, tru- if they prove to you, I am rationally choosing this. F off. I'm doing this. Okay. At that point, they've... Stated their agency, they are even you know yeah. For you to continue intervening, you are stealing the property essentially. Exactly, and then in the case of a person who's suffering from mental retardation, if they can prove to you that they know they're they're like that, and they can still if if they're able to prove it, and and granted this is all hinging on a system in which you can absolutely prove these things, but let's just say we have one for the sake of the argument. You know, if they can prove to you, I know what I'm doing. F off. It's my choice. And then you're like, you had to let them do it. And, and that's not pleasant because we love to assert control over the people to do what we think is right. But that's not the way to produce, pursue this. Right. And so those are one way, one way of them coming out. You know, if you are correct and if you are able to prove that the person is addicted, then you do still have the ability to override their decision and you have the ability to continue forward. Same thing with suicide. Suicide's a little cleaner, I think, because in suicide, most of the time, if you can, and, and prove to who is the next question. Because is it enough that you just prove to yourself or they prove to you that they need the help? Is it then up to you? Do you become their ward in that case? Because you could, I mean, a lot of people will love to say, look, I've proved this person has an addiction. Okay, society, deal with it. And then they walk away and clean their hands. I think in, what would really make it interesting is, okay, so you intervene with someone who's trying to commit suicide. You're going to take that risk. If you can prove that they're irrationally trying to commit suicide, it, be prepared to take on the responsibility of that person. Right. Same thing with drug addiction. Same thing with mental retardation. You better be prepared to assume the responsibility and become their ward. And they will not become your property. You mean, they, you mean steward? Steward, yeah. Become their steward. That They become your ward. Got it. Yes. Okay. Become their steward. So, and I think that would actually do a lot to remove the people from these situations who want to just control other people's lives necessarily and bring out the people who genuinely want to help other people. I think that you're not wrong. You'll still get people who are like, hmm, I could raise an army of people wanting to commit suicide <laughs> or people who want to be heroin addicts, you know? Um, but they become your reward. And I think it's perfectly okay if you want to advocate for them because you can still be their steward and still involve them into a system uh, of other people, you know, run by other people. But 
I think at any point though, if that if that individual is able to break out and reassume their agency, you have to let them have it. You cannot keep them from trying to be agents, but in that in and because most of these things are momentary. You know, suicide is often very momentary. Drug addiction is very momentary. Bigger moments, but it's still momentary. Mental retardation maybe not be moment may not be momentary, but it deciding it, you know. I think and there might be a cost you have to pay for wrongly assuming them, wrongly asserting stewardship over somebody else. Um, I'm actually kind of okay with that, I think. I think that's acceptable. At the end, I think essentially you calling someone out for that is going to bring you into a public arena in which the society itself is going... You're essentially both going to have to prepare arguments to argue it to society or your society or your community because realistically i think you know in any size community in which and i define the community as people who know each other and interact with each other on a regular basis in which social credit can actually be established you know if i come up and say all right i'm stopping so and so from committing suicide well the moment you do that if there's a dispute between you two the community is probably going to be the one that has to resolve that you know uh, right. and the community is <laughs> going to either have to decide well no you're wrong for intervening. Stop that. Or you now owe him for wrong wronging him. Or the person who would have committed suicide, you know, he was right to do that. And so now as a community, we're going to try to rehabilitate you, but with them in charge of it. And so if you assume the responsibility for, say, a heroin addict and you become their steward and you, it's your responsibility to rehabilitate that person, you can also be held responsible for the lack of rehabilitation that person goes through as well like if, if they get worse in your care you can still be held responsible in the event that, that person becomes an agent or someone else tries to assert over it right so i'm actually pretty happy with the way that turned out i think that's a good way to deal with it i'm sure there are problems i can't wait to hear about them because i'm sure someone will tell me um but um i do think that whole debt thing will complicate it a lot yes yes it but uh i look forward to talking about that in another in another episode so all right um all right with that being said i guess anything else all right. Nope. Philosophers. Philosophers.